talk about an uphill battle 2,000 acres of beans and cattle But he don't ever get rattled He just goes to the sun goes down Hello, this is Greg Bloom. Welcome to another episode of Food Chat. Food Chat is all about where food comes from. How does it get from the field to your plate? And uh, today I have a great guest on that I've been looking forward to talking to for a while, Jim Ehrlich from the Colorado Potato, if not board. So Jim, I'm going to have you um, explain who it is you work for and what exactly you do. Okay, I'm the, uh, first of all, thanks Greg for having me on today. Um, I'm the executive director of the Colorado Potato Administrative Committee in the San Luis Valley and we're the state and federal marketing order for potatoes um, located in the San Luis Valley. And what that really means is the potato producers down there took advantage of the Marketing Order Act of 1939 to put a marketing order in place so that they could ensure quality potatoes shipped throughout the country. And they've maintained that since 1941. And uh, tell us a little bit about you, Jim. How did you get to the potato committee? And uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Well, I attended CSU, got a degree in agronomy, farmed with my in-laws and brother-in-law for several years, and then uh, went to work for Coors Brewing Company as an agronomist. And they offered me the job here in the San Luis Valley, and I did that for 10 years became their area manager of their malting operation uh, in Monta Vista and um, got to know all the potato producers through that relationship. And they had an opening for an executive director and they approached me and it sounded like a really good opportunity. And I took the job and I've been doing it for 17 years now. Well, wow, sounds like a great fit. Well, hey, uh, Jim, tell our listeners who are in Colorado, but also all over the country, uh, when this goes out on a podcast, um, why is Colorado a, a good place to grow potatoes? Because we have a lot of potato growers here. So what what makes the conditions in Colorado favorable? Yeah, we're, we're actually the second largest shipper of fresh market potatoes in the country. So you're right, it is a great place. Uh, the San Luis Valley is really suited because we have warm, sunny days and cool nights and potatoes love that. Uh, agronomically and um, we're surrounded by mountains and high at a high altitude so we have very few pests uh, it's, it's, a, it's really an alpine desert so um, we have very few insects we have cold winters that take care of a lot of those problems and uh, up until the last 10 years or so we actually had really abundant water supplies too but that's kind of become one of our challenges now yeah, I'm sure water is an important issue everywhere. Well, Jim, what types of potatoes are grown here? I think when people think potatoes like myself, I normally think of russet potatoes. But uh, is that the primary class or variety of potato grown here? And what are the other ones? Yeah, russets are our primary um, production. Probably about 85 to 87% are russets. But we grow over 120 varieties of potatoes. So uh, we have yellows, reds, purples, fingerlings. Uh, we have bicolor potatoes. We, we have quite a few different varieties and types. And then um, are these potatoes typically grown on small family farms or 
big industrial multinational company owned entities or how does that work? No, almost all of our farms are family farms. Um, of course, in agriculture in general, there's been more consolidation all the time because of uh, rising costs and the cost of input. So farmers are getting bigger. You're seeing fewer younger people come back to the farm. So as farmers retire, the farmers that are able in the neighborhood buy up their farm and you lose a farm and the other farm becomes bigger, but it's still a family farm. Uh, we have approximately 160 growers, probably 80 to 90 family farms. There's, there's only, I can think of uh, maybe one corporate entity in the San Luis Valley. And uh, maybe Jim, you could share with our listeners, what are some of the challenges that uh, family farms have growing potatoes? I mean, like what's a, what's a day look like? And maybe before you get into the challenges, you could talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the planting season and, uh, and the harvest season. So it's probably spring and fall, but maybe you could walk us through that. Yeah, I think you're right. Let's start with the, the progression of the crop, right? So, uh, typically, you'll start preparing your seed and cutting seed in, you know, early March to plant it in mid-April to mid-May. Um, then, you know, you have about 90 to 100 days the crop will grow and you start harvesting mid-September. Try to be done by mid-October because of the danger of frost. Um, one thing, you know, we're at 7,600 feet in altitude, so... We have that danger of frost all the time. And uh, that's one of our challenges. Um, I think a typical day would be, you know, a grower would plant his crop and then just, you know, keep tabs on it every single day all the way through the season. One of the tough things to, to do is to know um, when to apply fertilizer. Potatoes are unique in that when you have tuber initiations, start the development of tubers, you have to time your nitrogen application correctly. And then we have really coarse sandy soils. So you wanna make sure that you're putting your fertilizer on at the right time, right place, right amount. You kind of spoon feed the crop throughout the season. Uh, and then another challenge too is knowing when to kill the vines because uh, you have to do it early enough that you can harvest but you also want to get the full potential out of the crop um, because if you kill a little too soon, the tubers will be smaller. You won't get quite the yield. So you, it's kind of an art knowing when to, when to actually do that. Um, challenges, the biggest challenge we have right now is water, trying to keep our aquifer sustainable. Uh, all of our production is uh, produced under groundwater application. We take water out of the Rio Grande River and basically uh, augment the water table. And uh, the last 20 years have been drought ridden. It's warmer and drier than it used to be here as it is across the whole Western United States. And uh, trying to figure out how to manage that in a sustainable way. We've had to cut back on uh, the actual acres of farming that we can do. We haven't really cut back a lot in the last 10 years on potato production. The acreage has been pretty stable. Uh, but 
grower, growers are cutting back on their uh, rotational crops and trying to plant more cover crops and green manure crops to save water. Uh, and then that, you know, that crop really doesn't provide an income unless you graze it with cattle or something like that. And we've got more producers doing that all the time. You know, in general, weather's just a challenge for farmers. Uh, every year, you never know if it's going to rain or hail or, like I said, freeze. Um, one good thing about the San Luis Valley, though, is we have pretty consistent weather. We don't get too much rain ever and uh, less than seven inches a year of total moisture. So that if you have adequate groundwater, you can supply your crop with the irrigation water you need and you know things usually turn out really well uh, don't get a lot of hailstorms but we do get some um, i already mentioned we don't get much disease pressure it's very low humidity so that's an advantage um, i think some of the other challenges we face are labor of course um, it's hard to get people to work on the farm anymore and it's particularly hard to get people to work um, in warehouse situations anymore. Um, that works repetitive. We're seeing a lot of robotics and technology going into the warehouses, which is a good thing. It's good for efficiency, but it also means less jobs for people. Um, I think keeping up with the cost of production, all the input costs continue to go up all the time. And even though we've seen Food prices go up recently because of the inflationary pressure. Uh, typically, food is pretty cheap in the United States, abundant and cheap. Farmers are price takers, not uh, price setters. So you're kind of at the mercy of the big retailers that we're selling to. And they're, they're good to work with, but uh, you know, you, it, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Uh, when fertilizer prices were up two years ago, 40%, that's that's significant. And the cost of water has gone up a lot because of the shortage of water. Keeping up with technology is another thing too, Greg. You know, it's just, uh, it's, it's an asset, uh, but to be a f producer today, you, you need to really have a wide knowledge base on a lot of different things. And it's always been that way, but it's coming at producers fast and furious these days. Jim, you used the word a couple times uh, in your explanation, uh, tuber. So is that just the industry word for potato? Yes. Tuber? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I've heard that a few times, but maybe some of our listeners are not familiar with a, a mm -hmm. tuber. And also, I think it's interesting, Jim, um, how the, the seeding process works. So if I'm a potato grower, I can't just take the um, potatoes that I grow, uh, save some and plant them next spring, can I? Well, you you can you can, but but you have to ensure they have an eye when you plant them. So that's why uh, growers will cut them, make sure they have an eye. But truthfully, the best the best way to go about it is to plant certified seed um, that was grown by a seed grower in the same process, but fewer years in the field, so it has less disease. Potatoes are kind of unique in that they all start out with tissue culture in a lab as the seed source. And that's to keep them virus-free, disease-free. And then you have to take them into the field in order to increase the volume that you need to plant. Because you, 
you plant around, uh, depending on the variety, somewhere between 15,000 to 18,000 tubers in an acre. And an acre is roughly the size of a football field. So you need a lot of volume to plant a, a big field. Yeah, yeah, I can tell from just looking at potato farms that I've, I've seen. Um, Jim, tell us a little bit about um, how once the vines have died, uh, the plant above ground has died, and then how long before, you know, let's just say, you know, there's the freeze threat, of course, but these are below ground. So I guess my question is, how long can they be down uh, in the soil before they would start to rot? Yeah, well, that's a good question. You know, um, where we live, we don't get the moisture that would cause a lot of the rot problems. But um, typically for a good skin set, you need three weeks most of the time for the vine to be dead. And then the, the tuber will actually, because uh, the skin needs to toughen up in order that you can harvest it without bruising it and causing damage that'll show up later. That's one of the tough things at harvest, and you have to handle those uh, potatoes with kid gloves um, to make sure that you don't bruise them. It won't show up in initially, but, um, well, I, it could show up initially, but usually you're trying to store potatoes uh, almost for a year in order that people can have a supply. You know, we harvest September. We still want you to be able to have French fries in August, right? So um, we have to do a really good job of keeping quality in the storage so that you're not disappointed when you go to buy them at retail. And then what does a storage facility look like? Are these, um, these are above ground, uh, I don't know what to call them. Are they sheds or barns and then are they cooled or how do, how Yeah, they they're, they're, they're typical uh, metal machine shed type framework, um, but they're humidity controlled and temperature controlled. So after you put potatoes in the storage at harvest, you try to slowly ramp down the temperature to about 38 to 40 degrees and keep it at 92 to 95 percent relative humidity because they're they're respiring they're a living organism um, so you don't want them to dehydrate and so um, yeah it's there's a lot of technology involved there a lot of uh, electrical input as far as keeping the humidity and temperature just where it needs to be. Now, when it comes to um, where the potatoes go after they're harvested, I know we can't eat all these potatoes in Colorado. No. We're number two in the nation, so we're not big enough to eat them. Where, where do Colorado potatoes go? They, they basically go from Florida to California to New York. Uh, we don't ship to the Pacific Northwest because we've got big competitors up there, but... Um, yeah, they go all over the country. We, we ship a lot of potatoes into Mexico, export into Mexico. Our, our primary markets are uh, Texas, Florida, Georgia, that southeastern section of the United States. But we also ship a lot to Arizona and to the Midwest. Uh, and then probably about 10 to 12 percent of our crop is going to Mexico these days. I've been down um, on some uh, trade mission trips with um, Colorado Department of Ag, and, uh, mm -hmm. and I was stood next to the, our potato uh, industry folks, friends, and uh, it's amazing how popular uh, potatoes are in Mexico, Colorado potatoes. And that, that's probably because in Mexico they can't grow the kind of potato varieties that we grow because their climate's completely different. Is that is that why? 
Well, there's a couple reasons, and you're right about that. Um, they have a different type of potato. They they grow the alpha variety there, and that's pretty much what they grow. Um, it, it, it's an interesting dynamic down there because they have uh, basically about 12 families that dominate the market in Mexico. So they've, they've been really able to control the supply and limit, well, basically limit the supply and keep prices artificially higher than they would be. And so it, it's a long story. It took over 20 years to get full access to that market. And it was a real political fight. But we've done that and we hope that Mexican consumers only, only eat about uh, 25% of the potatoes that U.S. consumers eat. So we just hope we can grow the demand there gradually so that there'll be, you know, enough uh, business for both U.S. producers and Mexican producers. Tim, as far as production goes, um, if we looked at a pie graph or just some data about how we're eating potatoes here in the United States, um, would the biggest slice of the pie graph be, I'm just going to guess and say potato chips or French fries over whole baked potatoes or how would Yeah, that no, you're right. It's frozen, frozen processed potatoes are the biggest piece of the pie. And I don't, I can't, I haven't looked at that data recently, but fresh potatoes is usually around 30%, 32%. Uh, chips are a little bit less than that. And fries are usually 40, 45%, something like along those lines. And I may not have the numbers exact, but I'm close. Yeah, and you know, one thing that's interesting uh, to me, Jim, is that uh, Colorado doesn't have a large, lot of huge um, plants that can process potatoes and turn them into French fries and potato chips like other states up north have. So. Mm -hmm. um, that means a lot of our potatoes get shipped out of the state as whole potatoes, correct? Yeah, 95% uh, of them do. Um, the only real market we have for process is uh, goes to a plant in Kansas for potato salad, really, a resource plant there. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's kind of unique, but a Processed potatoes are a little different variety. You store them at warmer temperatures so that they don't fry dark. And um, I, in Idaho, I think 60% of their crop goes to processing. In Washington State, uh, over 90%. Wisconsin's another big potato producer, and I think over half of their crop goes into processing too. So we're, we're unique, and ours goes into retail. Um, food service, institutions, schools. That's that's our market is the fresh market. Yeah, you know, one uh, interesting indicator for how much potato processing goes on in a state is to visit the cattle feedlots. I've been to the <laughs> feedlots up in Idaho and Washington yeah. State, and they're mixing, uh, you know, with the, the feed regimen for the cattle in the feedlots, they mix potato peelings up there because they're abundant. But you go to Colorado and you'll see distillers grains and other things, but you won't see potatoes because there's no processing here. So yeah, that's true. That gets you know uptaked into cattle feed, which is great. It's great use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have we have a couple um, processors local, but it's just dehydrated flake. So it's the stuff that doesn't make the quality standards for uh, the marketing order that basically are too big or misshapen things like that. 
uh, too small, and they'll just uh, take them and basically uh, take the water out of them and turn them into potato flakes. Interesting. Hey, uh, Jim, we're going to wrap things up here. I appreciate your time. But before we go, let's talk about where consumers can find Colorado-grown potatoes. Now, maybe in Colorado, it's a little easier, but would a potato bag indicate where it's grown or, or not? Occasionally, but not very often, because the, the big retailers really want their uh, everything to have their private label on it. So you really won't see... Um, grown in Colorado on the, on the bag. Uh, but I can assure you that if you go into um, most, almost all the Walmart stores, stores in Colorado, definitely a lot of the city market Kroger stores, um, you're gonna see Colorado potatoes. It would be true of some of the Safeway and Albertson stores, um, but there's a fair amount of product from Idaho in those stores. Um, unfortunately, but that's the case. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not just a potato problem, is it? I mean, a lot of the uh, foods that we eat today are co-packed and branded by the store that's selling them no matter what yeah, it is. Absolutely. Could be milk yeah, absolutely. Whatever. They just love their brand, which, I, you know, I get it. So, but the food can lose its identity, which is too bad. So, hey, Jim, thanks so much. Uh, we'll, we'll talk again, and uh, I really enjoyed having you on today, so thank you. Here's to the farmer that plants the fields in the spring That turn from green to that harvest honey Hold one up for the banker downtown That got him on his feet with handshakes